The scripture reading for today is from Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the low, lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, a joy and a privilege to be back here again with you at First Baptist Church and a joy to enter into this Ephesians series with you. We are continuing along. I know last week we looked at, it was the last Sunday for the Seeing Jesus series. This morning we're continuing with the Ephesians series. Shifting gears a little bit, from speaking about the great calling that has been placed on the church to now what this actually looks like in practice. And before coming here to preach, Pastor Justin shared with me, explained that this series was meant to be about renewing our lenses to see the church with a renewed, from a renewed perspective. And that's partly, I think, because so many churches in this COVID season have really had to struggle with a, a certain level of crises to varying degrees of who they are, what we're called to do, how we're supposed to live as a church in this season, in these varying seasons, when these difficulties and struggles all come at us. How are we supposed to live out our calling as the church? And the letter to the Ephesians is such a good book to turn to in these kinds of circumstances because Paul's just really throwing a, a wake-up pie in the face to these Christians, to his listeners, explaining who the church is from the perspective of the Lord who created it. 
For three chapters, as we've, as, we've, as we've noticed in these last few weeks, for three chapters, Paul has just waxed eloquently about this magnificent vision for the church, right? Of, of this, the way that Christ sees it, this new humanity that's been created, this new society that has been formed. And now, in chapter 4, as John Stott put it, now the apostle moves on from the new society to the new standards that are expected of it from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications for everyday living. Which is why Paul's initial driving push here, as we've, as we've heard read earlier, Paul's driving push here in, in this passage is already at verse 1. He says this, Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling. Well, hold on, Paul, wait. Paul, hasn't, you haven't told us to do anything yet, so what calling are you talking about? Well, the calling that he's just spent the last three chapters explaining to us. See, because your calling isn't what you do. It's who you are. This is really important. We, we, if we don't understand who we are, we can't understand the calling that we've received. Why do I say that? Because that is actually the consistent narrative throughout Scripture. Think about, go back to Genesis 1 in your mind. Think about it from the very beginning. For Adam and Eve, the life to be lived was the stewarding of the earth, right? They were called to be garters, keepers, priests in God's creation temple, taking care of the earth. That was their responsibility. But the call on Adam and Eve was to be image bearers. They were only tasked with being garters and keepers of the earth because that's what image bearers do. They look like God. They do as God does. In other words, we as the church have been called, we've been chosen to be the chosen sons and daughters of God who have been given insight about who Jesus is. Our calling then is an identity in Jesus. And in the context of Ephesians, in the context of this letter, being in Jesus means, at the end of chapter 1, to be, quote, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As the body of Jesus Christ, we are called to be the fullness of him, of he who fills everything in every way. The fullness of Jesus, filled to the brim with Jesus, full of Jesus. That's what our calling is. It's why Paul says at the end of chapter 2, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And then at the end of chapter 3, I pray that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Our calling is to be filled with Christ. And I want you to try to think about that as literally as possible. Our calling is to be filled with Christ in him and he in us. And now, says Paul in chapter 4, live a life worthy of that calling. Live a life worthy of that calling. You cannot live that life if you've not first identified yourself with that calling. So we need, to, we need to stop thinking about calling as a doing thing. It's a being thing. You are called. You don't do called. I have a calling. I don't do a calling. Because if I don't know or realize this calling that I have, then I'm not going to live into it. If I interview and I get hired on at some company for a certain position, but I don't know what the job is that I've been hired on for, I'm not going to know what to do with my time. 
live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. You've already received it, right? You've already been hired on. You've already received this calling. And Paul's just told us what the position is that we've received, what this calling is that we have received. So now in this passage, he's giving us, he's giving his listeners a little bit of a job description. And he gives two main responsibilities for the church, both of which are deeply connected to this calling. That being one, unity, and the second, maturity. Verses two to three, he says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace or through the bond of peace. Make every effort, he says, right? There's, this, there's an urgency in his words, which implies that unity is one of the key ways that we live out our great calling in Christ, a, a way that presumes humility and gentleness and patience and love, right? We can't seek unity if we don't have those things, if we don't have those characteristics. Make every effort, he says. Spare no effort is another way of putting it. Do everything you possibly can. Why? Because it's the spirit of Jesus Christ who is the bond or the adhesive of that unity. The, the spirit was given, in other words, to the church to be the glue that ties the body together. And if, if you actually look at the word for spirit in both Greek and Hebrew, it's the same word for breath. So the implication here is that unless the breath is in the body, unless the spirit is in the body, the body is dead. The body can't function without that breath within it. The spirit is what holds the body together and gives it life. So when we then, as the body, seek to pull apart and sort of unstickify ourselves from one another, we are sucking the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ right out of us. It's like pulling the thread out of all of your clothes. Eventually, the cloth won't hold together, and you'll end up, instead of a t-shirt, you'll have just a blob of fabric on the floor. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This has huge implications for whenever we are, as, as a church, as a community, for whenever we are actively or intentionally allowing division and quarreling to go on within our community because we are actively destroying the witness of the Holy Spirit. When you really think about it, it should be unthinkable that we would ever allow or intentionally divide the body that is meant to be the fullness of Jesus Christ. When you understand the calling that we've received, that should be unthinkable, that we would ever allow or desire for that to happen. Now, this, this doesn't mean, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we can't occasionally think differently about things, right? Unity doesn't equate to uniformity, as if we all need to do and think exactly alike. That would be terrible, heaven forbid. But we cannot condone things like rivalries within the church, within Jesus' body. We cannot condone conflicts that have been allowed to fester for months, even years. Bitterness, grudges that are a poison for any community. The Holy Spirit, the breath, simply cannot breathe in those kinds of contexts, in those kinds of situations or conditions. But the reality is that we are just so terribly oversensitive about everything, right? We dramatize our differences and we take ourselves so seriously. We take our opinions and the ways that we think so seriously. It's actually, I want to argue, this is actually a cultural value that has snuck into the church. 
It snuck itself into the church where we no longer know how to have appropriately gentle and whimsical conversations with one another. We just don't know how to do it anymore. We should, but we should actually be professional diplomats. Really. We should all be professional diplomats with one another. Why? Because according to Paul, the oneness of the body reflects the oneness of God himself. Look at verses 4 through 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. John Stott again said this, is there only one God? Then he only has one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church, he says, is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. In this passage, in Ephesians 4, Paul is tasking us to make every effort to try as stinking hard as we can to remember who we are to remember our calling, which he's outlined for us in these first few chapters, to remember our common purpose and to reflect the truth that there is one God, one faith, one baptism. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I know what you're all thinking. We're terrible at this, right? Reading through church history is one of the most depressing things that you can do. The church has been awful at this, terrible. We have been, it has been a horrible witness to the world that we have so many divided churches, that there are families that have literally split apart, churches that have been torn, leaders that have created polarizations within the body. I remember uh, being in Grand Rapids for a semester and we would be driving around and it would be almost laughable. We would, we would, it was really lamentable, but it was almost laughable at the amount of times where we came to an intersection and there were two, maybe even three churches, kitty corner from one another, on the same block, <laughs> right? All over the place. It was so sad to us, especially coming out of, you know, a, a secular Vancouver kind of context. But then on the flip side, Danny and I recently moved into South Coquitlam, into the South Coquitlam area, and I've actually been pleasantly surprised how many churches there are that there are so many churches actually in the area. And in this case, I've seen it as a good thing. It's, it's a good thing when you think about it. It's such a good thing to have so many pockets of communities, so many different expressions of worshiping communities of the body of Christ where, where nearby neighbors can be invited in, right? You don't wanna invite somebody to your church that's 45 minutes away. Who cares if it has 5,000 people? That's, that's a lot of effort for somebody, right? It's a good thing. The number of churches that we have is actually a strength, provided that we learn how to speak well about one another and to work together as the one body under Jesus. See, the stain on the church isn't that we have so many different churches. The stain on the church is how our churches have spoken to and about one another how we've failed to partner with and to pray for one another and have instead only emphasized our differences. While I was studying years ago at Regent, there was an Eastern Orthodox priest who came to speak to one of our classes to share with us about what being Eastern Orthodox was all about, what the Eastern Orthodox Church was all about. And I'll never forget this. He started, he started with this statement. 
we must always remember that our similarities far outweigh our differences. In other words, what unifies us is far more significant than what divides us. There is one body, says Paul, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. One, 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 one. Are we getting the point? You know, it is, it is so strange that there have been so many debates over how the Trinity can be three in one, our triune God can be three persons in one, and yet Paul's here telling us that millions of believers are one. Everyone who has given themselves up, has has sought to follow our Lord Jesus, has given up everything to follow him and believed in his name, is part of one body. And in verses 7 through 10, Paul now takes us one step further to explain how this body is now meant to look. So we're shifting here now from unity into maturity, okay? This is Paul's transition point. He quotes from Psalm 68, This is a little bit dense here, so just follow with me. He quotes from Psalm 68, and there is a slight adjustment in the text, which I can't get into at the moment. But the point that he's pressing is that this God, this is a God who gives gifts to his people for the sake of unity, okay? So in the context of Psalm 68, the context is of this heroic, mighty Yahweh in battle, right? Scattering his enemies, being a father to the fatherless, and as he ascends to his mountain, All the nations are looking at him in awe and envy. All the other mountains are looking at the mountain of God with envy. And when God ascends to his mountain, things happen. The nations are gathered to him. The world becomes his. And there's a giving of gifts. So Paul then takes that psalm and applies it now to Jesus. Right? Because 40 days after his resurrection... Jesus is now the one who ascends on high. So not only did God come down to earth, but God has also now ascended to fill the whole earth in Jesus. And as C. Leslie Minton has put it, there is now no part of the universe where Christ is not. In other words, Christ hasn't deserted the world. He's filling it. And according to Paul, he's filling it through the church through his body. How? Well, as the ascended Lord, Jesus can now give gifts to his people. Jesus gives gifts to his people for the sake of unity. Look at verse 11. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, people, in other words, with leadership gifts to equip the people for service so that the church can be built up. Until, says Paul in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Until, he says, until we reach unity and become mature. Right? So we're not there yet. This is Paul's subtle way of saying we're not there yet, folks. We haven't yet grown into maturity because when we do, we'll know. We'll know when we've reached maturity because then the whole measure of Christ's fullness will be evident in us. Paul's prayer for the church is to become so matured in Jesus that Jesus becomes literally the heartbeat of our existence. 
where the presence of Jesus is so deeply permeated into us that there's no separation anymore. There's no separation between body and head, between bride and bridegroom. Then, says Paul, we'll no longer be infants, tossed around by every wind of teaching, by every new wave and fashion of Christianity, by every new flowing thing, whatever, that ne the next new religious thing. No, that's actually a sign for Paul of immaturity. Instead, he says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow in every respect, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Because from him the whole body, joined and held together, right, this is unification language, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We have friends right now who have a seven-month-old baby who's still learning how to sit up, right? He's just always lying on his stomach and trying to figure out how to, how to sit up properly. Eventually, he will figure it out. But imagine if he was continually trying to sit up without ever, losing, without ever using his hands, right? As if, as if he didn't realize that he had them. The poor guy would be stuck, right? He, he would probably crawl for the rest of his life because he doesn't realize the gifts that he's been given for the purposes of, of being able to sit up, to grow, to mature. That's what Paul's worried about for the church. The body of Jesus is made up of many different members, right? Many different parts. Think of your own body. Think of how many digits and things make up your own human body. The, the church in the same way is made up of many different parts and the church matures just like our own bodies mature, right? Just like our, think about how your own body grows and matures. The church grows and matures when each part does its work. If there are body members, you know, legs, toes, knees, eyes, whatever, things that aren't being used, the church is going to walk with a limp. Or, or the church is, is going to be all talk and no action. Or the church isn't going to listen very well. Unity and maturity, in other words, go hand in hand, right? The more unified that we are, the more we seek the gifts of one another, and the more we mature and grow to become the fullness of Jesus. That's Paul's paradigm here. That's how the body grows and matures. The communities that thrive are the ones that empower the people to do the work of ministry where each member has value, right? The priesthood of all believers, we talk about this all the time, where each member has a means by which they can live out their calling as a chosen son or daughter of God in Jesus. And yes, in, in this particular text, specific giftings are mentioned, are named, but only to highlight, I think, the gifts that are meant to keep that maturity of the body in check those who have the giftings to encourage other giftings, to encourage the people towards ministry rather than do it for them, right? Prophets, preachers, teachers, pastors, evangelists, apostles, these are the people that see gifts in others and encourage them, nurture them, build them, grow them so that the whole body can benefit. The body can only be healthy, again, when every part of the body is doing its connecting work working as one, moving by the breath of the Spirit and under control of the head. As Will Barclay has put it, no brain can work through a body which is disintegrated and uncoordinated and split into fragments, right? If the hand's over here and the leg's over here and the eye's over there and the finger's over there, and we just, it doesn't work. The head can't do anything, which is a horrible thing to think about, that Jesus can't actually work through us unless we're connected, 
by the bond of his spirit. When you think about it, how often actually do conflicts and situations arise in our churches when a gift is, out, is not being used? Or, or when a gift is being used in a way that's actually misplaced? Alternatively, how amazing is it when, when someone feels like they have something to share and a member comes up to them and says, hey, I see this in you. Hey, I, I think this is a gift you might have. What a beautiful way to breathe Holy Spirit life into someone's existence, right? That literally can bring someone's dry bones up to life. There are people in this church and in every church who have gifts, but there are no avenues right now by which they can use them. And as the church of the great giver of gifts, we have to be willing to be creative to find new ways to allow the members of his body to function. You know, our, our inclination, as I mentioned earlier, is always to take ourselves so seriously. But we don't actually take one another seriously enough. Just like we can, we can take our own bodies for granted, it's so easy to take the members of our church body for granted. I seriously need to consider how you're gifted. I seriously need to consider the ways that Jesus wants you to function and flourish as a member of his body. I seriously need to consider ways that my gifts could align with yours so that we can create more opportunities for growth and development within the body of Jesus. Because when we help one another flourish, when, when I help another member flourish, we all benefit from that. We all will feel the effects. When one part of the body thrives, we all thrive. When one part suffers, we all suffer. This is Christian maturity. When we actually feel the effects of, of someone suffering, of someone thriving, the whole body feels it together. When the breath of Jesus Christ fills every corner of us, this is when we know that the whole measure of Christ's fullness has been made evident in us. To live a life worthy of our calling, which is Paul's main push here. Again, this is his main thing. Live a life worthy of the calling. To do this is living into the fullness of our calling, which is living in the fullness of Christ, who emptied himself for the sake of the whole body. We too are called to empty ourselves for one another so that his fullness can come in and fill us. But to do this implies that, one, there's five things here. To do this implies that, one, we start with Christian humility and love, modeled after Christ himself, who humbled himself so much to a point of even death on a cross. We start with Christian humility and love because only from that vantage point can we then, two, seek efforts of unity. That posture of humility and love fuels efforts of unity that actually reflect the unity of God. And the more that we seek then to mirror and reflect God, the more we'll three, look for the Spirit's activity among us and seek after the gifts that he's given for the building of his church, right? If you're seeking to be unified, that's something that you're naturally just gonna do. This then for leads to a healthier body where we are codependent on one another, building one another up. We're all joined together. We're functioning as a team. We're acknowledging our need for one another. 
Then and only then, five, do we grow into maturity. And as Paul put it, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Is this the pattern that we want to follow? Is this paradigm our deepest desire? Because more often than not, I think we try to skip over some of these, right? It's a little bit easier. We don't want to start with humility and love, right? We want to just skip to these other things, but no, no, no. Is this our desire? To be so filled to the brim with Jesus, to be so in him and he in us, to empty ourselves so much so that his fullness can fill us, that we as the church are nothing less than the very reflection and fullness of Jesus Christ himself. Is that our greatest desire? Paul's encouragement in this passage is for us to know the calling that we have received, to know whose we are and whose body we belong to, and to know this calling so deeply that we spare no effort to pursue unity and to mature so that we can live a life worthy of this great calling. To breathe together in the Holy Spirit as the one body of Jesus who is our head so that the fullness of Jesus can be in us, can exist in us, and we in him. That was Paul's greatest prayer for the Ephesians. That's what he desired most for them. In John 17, it was Jesus' prayer for his disciples. That's what he desired most for them. May this be our greatest prayer as well. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.